a covenant is a binding commitment between at least two parties. You can't have a one-party covenant. A covenant always requires at least two parties who've made commitment. So a, a covenant is a binding commitment between two parties. Even if only one party is making all the promises or commitment, he has to have a second party to whom he's making that commitment or, or promises so that you can't have a one-person covenant. And so the question here is, who are the parties in this covenant that we call the Abrahamic covenant? It's going to be obvious as we look at the scriptures that God is the first party. He's the one that initiates the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. So God is the first party of the covenant. The second party, according to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18, is Abraham. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18, where we're told the exact day that God established the covenant with Abraham. Let me just read it to you, Genesis 15, 18. In that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Genesis 15, 18. We're going to come back to that again to see what's involved there. So God's the first party. Abraham was the second party. Then Isaac is the third party. And uh, get a little bit of background here with regard to this. It's important to see because it's going to shed a lot of light on what's the hot issue today in the Middle East. Who's the rightful owner of that? Is it the Palestinians or is it the people of Israel? As you may know from Genesis 17, God had promised to give Abraham a son. And uh, years had gone by and it hadn't happened. God had indicated that Abraham's wife Sarah was going to give birth to a son and it wasn't happening. And apparently Abraham and Sarah had a lapse of faith and so Sarah gave her Egyptian handmaiden, Hagar, to her husband, Abraham, and said, father a child through Hagar. And so Abraham did that. He obeyed his wife. And as a result, there was a son born, and they named him Ishmael. Ishmael. And you read about that in, in Genesis 17. Later, when we come to Genesis 17, and most Old Testament scholars believe uh, what we're going to look at now took place when Ishmael was maybe about 13 or 14 years of age, just uh, in the early days as a teenager, etc. And uh, we, we find here that Abraham, in verse 18 of Genesis 17, said unto God, O oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. I take it that was Abraham's way of saying, God, please bless my son Ishmael. And I think he had in mind, please bless my son Ishmael by giving him the same covenant you've given to me. Notice how God responded, verse 19 of Genesis 17. God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. Thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. God said, now here's the third party of the covenant, Ishmael. Not Ishmael, Isaac. Isaac. This son that your wife Sarah will give birth to a year from now, you'll name him Isaac. And uh, you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him, which would be Isaac's biological descendants, the people of Israel. 
Then look at verse 20. God says, and as for Ishmael, I've heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget. I will make him a great nation, but, notice the contrast, this is a very critical light of the uproar today, who's the rightful owner there in the land. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at the set time in the next year. Notice God's drawn a distinction here between the two sons of Abraham. He said, I've heard your plea to bless your son Ishmael. I've already begun to bless him. I'm going to bless him in the future, but he's not going to come into the covenant relationship with me that I've given to you. Not that son, but your other son, Isaac, is the one that I'll give the same covenant relationship with me as I've given to Abraham. So God's saying a distinction here. This Abrahamic covenant is just through that one son, Isaac and his descendants, which would be the people of Israel, not with Ishmael and his descendants. Now notice, God didn't say, I hate Ishmael and his descendants. I've heard your plea. I've already begun to bless him. I'm going to bless him and multiply his descendants tremendously. But the covenant I've established with you, I'm not going to establish with Ishmael and his descendants. Instead, I'm going to establish it with your other son that Sarah will give birth to a year from now, Isaac, and his biological descendants, which eventually would be the people of Israel. That's important to see because at least some of your Arab people claim that Ishmael was their ancestor. And some historians claim that Ishmael, uh, after a while, together with his descendants, migrated from the land of Canaan over into the northern part of what today is Saudi Arabia, and some historians claim that Ishmael and his descendants were the original Arab people in the world. There's a debate on that, but at least a number of historians claim that. So it's important to see here that God's drawn a distinction here between who the parties are. The first party is God. The second party is Abraham. The third party is Isaac. And then the fourth party is Jacob. Is Jacob. And we have the record here in Genesis 28... Uh, verses 10 through 14. Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 14. Jacob was sleeping out of doors one night, and God gave him a dream or a vision. We read here at, at chapter 28 of Genesis, verse 10, Jacob went out from Beersheba, went toward Haran. He lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. He took of the stones of that place, put them for his pillows, lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up in the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. The Lord stood above the ladder in this dream and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. Thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Both the land promised there and God would bless all people of the world through Jacob's seed. Those are two of the promises in the Abrahamic covenant. 
So what's being revealed to us here, the parties in the Abrahamic covenant are number one, God. He instigates the covenant. Number two is Abraham. Number three is Isaac, one of Abraham's sons. And number four is Jacob. Jacob, one of uh, Isaac's sons. And God says here, Jacob and your seed. Jacob fathered 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that means the nation of Israel. So these are the parties of the covenant. Now, the second thing we have to see after the parties is the national promises of the Abrahamic covenant. The national promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And there are some personal covenants like to Abraham, I'll make your name great. And God's done that with Abraham Three of the world's major religions today all revere the name of Abraham. Judaism does, Christianity does, and Islam all re- revere the name of Abraham. So God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to make your name great. That was a personal promise just to Abraham. But there are national promises that God incorporated into this covenant. And there are three of them. The first national promise is this. God promised to make a great nation, referring to Israel, of Abraham's physical descendants. That's in Genesis chapter 12, verse two. Genesis 12, two. God promised to make a great nation, namely the nation of Israel, of Abraham's physical descendants. Great in significance, particularly, because of the role it would play on behalf of God throughout the course of world history. The second national promise, God promised to give the land of Canaan He promised to give the land of Canaan from the river of Egypt in the south to the Euphrates River in the north. God promised to give the land of Canaan from the river of Egypt in the south to the Euphrates River in the north to Abraham's physical descendants forever. Forever. That word forever is very critical. God promised to give the land of Canaan from the river of Egypt uh, in the south, to the Euphrates River of the north, to Abraham's physical descendants forever. Uh, if you would please look at Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, Look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed, for how long? Forever. When God says forever, that's what he means, forever. Abraham, all the land which you see, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed, forever. Forever. Then, Look, if you would, please, at chapter 15, verse 18. Chapter 15, verse 18 of Genesis. In that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, by the river of Egypt, that's not the Nile River. If you were to look at a map of when the nation of Israel got established in the promised land of Canaan, the southern border of the nation, it was actually uh, out of the tribe of Judah, was a stream of water called the Brook of Egypt that flowed from inland out into the Mediterranean Sea. 
That was the southern border. That's what's referred to here by the, the river of Egypt, the river of Egypt, not the Nile River. But have you ever looked at a map where the Euphrates River goes in the north? It goes right up through Syria and Lebanon. And so God's giving the southern and northern extensions of the land that he promised to give to Abraham's biological sons and people of Israel forever as an everlasting possession, as an everlasting possession. Look at chapter 17 and verse 8. Chapter 17 and verse 8, where God says to Abram, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for what kind of a possession? For an everlasting possession. I give it to you forever. I give it to you as an everlasting possession. Permanent ownership of that land to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the people of Israel. Forever. Everlasting a possession. Then there's a third national promise in the Abrahamic covenant. God promised to give the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham's physical descendants for an everlasting covenant. In other words, this covenant is to last forever between God and the people of Israel. God promised to give the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham's physical descendants for an everlasting covenant. Look at chapter 17 and verse 7. Chapter 17 and verse 7. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee. He's speaking here to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. In other words, this covenant is to last forever between God and the people of Israel. He's making that very, very clear. Look again at verse 19 we read earlier when he's talking about Isaac. Verse 19 of chapter 17. God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. Thou shalt call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him for the people of Israel. So this is a permanent binding covenant relationship that God establishes with the nation of Israel and with all the promises in that covenant. Now there's a third major thing we have to see. We've looked at the parties of the covenant, the national promises of the covenant. The third major thing we have to see is the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant. The unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant. What do we mean by unconditional nature? This is very critical to see, again, in light of the debate going on today, who's the rightful owner of the land. By unconditional, we mean the Abrahamic covenant does not require Israel, it does not require Israel to meet certain conditions. The Abrahamic covenant does not require Israel to meet certain conditions. In order for that covenant to remain in effect, the Abrahamic covenant does not require Israel to meet certain conditions. In order for the covenant to remain in effect and its promises to be fulfilled. Let me state it again. This is very important to understand in light of the situation today. The Abrahamic covenant does not require Israel to meet certain conditions. In order for the covenant to remain in effect and its promises to be fulfilled. Now, what are the biblical evidences to the effect this Abrahamic covenant is unconditional from Israel's perspective? 
Well, first of all, who made all the promises? God. Abraham made no promises in the establishment of this covenant. You have no record of Abraham making any promises, no record of Isaac making any promises, no record of Jacob making any promises, no record of the people of Israel making promises in this covenant. So God's the one who made all the commitment. He's the one that made all the promises. In light of that, in order for that covenant to remain in effect and his promise to be fulfilled, upon whom does that depend exclusively? God. Now, if Abraham made commitments, it'd be a different story. Then he'd have responsibilities to meet certain obligations. But the fact that neither Abraham or any of his descendants made any commitments in the status of this covenant, only God made all the commitments, says in order for that covenant to remain in effect and his promise to be fulfilled depends exclusively upon God and him alone being faithful to his word, his commitment. Now, here's another evidence that this is an unconditional covenant, and that is the way in which this covenant was established by God, the way in which this covenant was established by God. Uh, Go back to Genesis chapter 15 again, if you would. Genesis chapter 15. And uh, notice verse 7, Genesis 15, verse 7. God speaking with Abraham, he said, uh, he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And then Abraham said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? You keep telling me that, but can I really trust you to keep your word? Give me something substantial I can hold on to as the guarantee that you mean what you say, that you're going to give me ownership of this land. So in response to his request, God, beginning in verse 9, told him to do something that is very strange to you and me in our, in our modern Western world. God told Abraham, in response to his request, give me something concrete that I can really believe with all my heart you're going to keep that commitment. God told him to take several animals and cut them in half from the tip of the nose to the tip of the tail and lay the two halves of the animals side by side with a path in between. And Abraham did that. He did that in the following verses here. Look at verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Once Abraham cut the animals, laid the parts side by side with a a path in between, he goes into a deep sleep. I take it probably laying prone on the ground off to the side from these animals. He's not talking, he's not moving. He's just laying there in a deep sleep. And then notice uh, what begins to happen, verse 17. It came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. While Abraham's in a deep sleep off to the side from these animals, all of a sudden there's some object called a burning lamp with fire in it and smoke billowing out of it. And that burning lamp begins to move back and forth between the halves of those animals. Now, first of all, we have to ask, what would be that fire? Remember an experience that uh, Moses had when he was out in the desert tending flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, and he looked out on the horizon, all of a sudden there was a bush that burst into flames. 
That wasn't too unusual in a dry, arid area like that, but the th unusual thing about this was the bush continued to burn, but it wasn't consumed by the fire. Which said to Moses, this is not normal fire. And so out of curiosity, he draws near to observe this strange phenomenon. All of a sudden, a voice speaks out of the midst of that fire at him. You imagine being startled? <laughs> and it's the Lord speaking to him. And that's when the Lord told him, I've appointed you to be my human leader of my people of Israel out of their bondage and slavery from the land of Egypt. That fire signified there was a divine person there speaking with Moses. Later on, when God brings them out from their bondage and slavery, what begins to lead them? A pillar of fire enshrouded in a pillar of cloud. It led them across the Red Sea. It led them in the wilderness for 40 years. And when God wanted them to encamp, it would stop and just hover over one piece of land where it says, set up your tents here. We're going to stay here for a while. Then it was God's will for them to move. The pillar of fire began to move, and they'd pick up their tents and they'd follow it. Remember on the day they de dedicated the tabernacle, that portable worship structure in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 40. Fire came down from heaven, went inside of that tabernacle. Remember centuries later on the day that Solomon and the people of Israel dedicated their first temple there at Jerusalem to worship God. Fire came down out of heaven and filled that whole structure. What was that fire? Remember when they were at Mount Sinai, God's going to give the law. Fire and smoke. Fire came down on top of that mountain and, and smoke billowing from it. Just like here in this object moving between the abs and the animal, there's fire and smoke billowing out of it. That is what the Jewish people called the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. Every time it appeared, it always signified the unique presence of deity, the unique presence of deity, always. Now, here we have again an instrument with fire and smoke billowing out of it. And that's what's moving back and forth between the eyes of the animals. What's that signifying? Who is moving between the halves of those animals? God, moving back and forth between the halves of the animals. Abraham isn't moving at all. He's in a deep sleep, off to the, the side here. Now you say, okay, but this is so strange. What's the significance of this? This was one of the ways of people in that society in ancient times, one of the ways to establish a covenant. Establish a covenant. In fact, there's a reference somewhere in Jeremiah uh, about uh, the same procedure. In fact, the, the word in Hebrew for establishing a covenant says to cut a covenant, to cut a covenant, to cut a covenant. So here's the, here's the whole situation. If both parties of the covenant are making commitments, both parties were to move back and forth between the halves of the animals. But if only one party is making all the commitments, that's the only party that'll move back and forth between the halves of the animals. And the significance of it was this. In essence, they were saying, if I don't keep my commitment in this covenant, may the same thing be done to me that's been done to these animals. That's how significant that was. Well, notice, Abraham's not moving at all. Only God is moving back and forth between the halves of that animal, which says, 
God is making all the commitment. Abraham and his descendants are making no commitments at all in the establishment of this covenant. Which, again, is the reason that in order for that covenant to remain in effect and its promises to be fulfilled, including the land promise, depends totally on God, not upon Abraham. Now, uh, interesting, some people who hold to covenant theology and who uh, also hold to replacement theology say that it's a conditional covenant. And therefore, all those promises could be made null and void if the people of Israel rebel against God and they don't obey him in every instance. And so therefore, they say, well, Israel obviously rebelled against God. The, the worst thing they ever did was rejecting his son while he was here in the world. And so therefore, they have broken the covenant. It's null and void. It's no longer in effect. So the land promise is now null and void. Israel no longer has the right to own, own that land and all the rest. Uh, other people have the right to own that land. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Israel sin against God many times throughout the Old Testament? They certainly did. They broke all the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant, another covenant God established with them later. And as a result, God judged them. As we saw in Deuteronomy 28, he raised up foreign powers, removed them from their land, scattered them among the nations, and all the rest. But if all the sins they ever committed against God, what would have been the worst sin that Israel could have committed against God? What do you think? Rejection of his son. The other rebellion they did didn't hold a candle to the seriousness of what they did when God sent his beloved son into the world and the nation rejected him as his promised Messiah and the leaders of that nation cried out for his crucifixion. If there was any sin that Israel committed that could have broken that Abrahamic covenant with God, it certainly would have been what the nation, under the leadership of its, of its spiritual leaders, did to God's son, the Lord Jesus. Well, and your covenant theology people say, that certainly broke the covenant between God and Israel, and therefore it's null and void as far as Israel is concerned, and the land promise is null and void. They no longer have the right to that land. In light of that, turn with me, please, over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3. This is very, very significant in light of what we're looking at here today. Acts chapter 3. Of course, the church was born in Acts chapter 2, so this is the, the thing that took place is sometime after the church was born in Acts chapter 2. And uh, Peter and John, one day were going into the temple. And the gate through which they entered, I take it for decades, there was a, a man there uh, who was lame. He'd never walked a day in his life. He was born lame. And so he would be sitting there as people were going out of the temple begging alms from them because the only way he could survive, he wasn't able to, to work, hold down a job to support himself. And as people would come in, they'd beg alms. He'd beg alms of them. And Peter and John come to this man and apparently he begged alms of them. And Peter said, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. 
And God performed an incredible miracle of that lame man. He not only stood up and walked, he was so excited, he was leaping and jumping uh, in the temple. And that drew a huge crowd of people around them because Jewish people probably had seen him for decades. They knew this man had never walked a day in his life. It was obvious to them an incredible miracle had been performed. So a huge crowd now comes and gathers around Peter, John, and the healed lame man. Look at chapter 3, verse 12, how Peter reacted to this. Chapter 3, verse 12. When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murder to be granted unto you, and killed the prince of life whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Peter, in a sense, is nailing them to the wall and say, do you realize what you've been guilty of? You are guilty of rejecting God's Son. We say to the world to be your Messiah. You were guilty before Pilate of crying out, to have him crucified. You were guilty in a sense of the greatest sin that you as a people could ever make against God by rejecting his own son and having him crucified. But notice what he goes on to say in verse 25. This is, again, very important to note. You are, notice the present tense, not you were. In other words, you still are. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. That's one of the promises of Abraham and the covenant. Peter, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, says to this crowd, apparently a number of them in this crowd had been in the crowd when Jesus was on trial before Pilate and cried out for Jesus to be crucified. And therefore were guilty of Jesus being killed and crucified, Peter is saying, in spite of what you're guilty of, you still are the children of that covenant that God made with our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, you're still in that covenant relationship with God, even though you're rebels at what you've done against God's Son. Which says, therefore, that Israel, the people of Israel who rejected Jesus had been crucified, in spite of that, that didn't break the covenant relationship of the Abrahamic covenant between God and Israel. It's still in effect with him. Still in effect with him. And therefore, those who hold to covenant replacement theology are wrong in saying that because Israel rejected Jesus in his first coming, God has forever rejected the nation of Israel. They're no longer his unique people and uh, he's replaced Israel with the church. He's replaced Israel with the church. This, in my way of thinking, completely knocks the props out from underneath that line of thinking. Here are people who actually cried out for Jesus to be crucified, but they are still children of that Abrahamic covenant that God established with their ancestors forever, forever. 
Now, what we have to look at further here is the effects of the Abrahamic covenant upon Israel, the effects of the Abrahamic covenant upon Israel. First of all, the Abrahamic covenant guarantees Israel's permanent existence as a nation. The Abrahamic covenant guarantees Israel's permanent existence as a nation, or if you want to say as a people, that they'll never be totally eliminated from the face of the earth is the idea here. Think with me, since the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional by nature, totally dependent upon God's faithfulness for its fulfillment, and since God declared it to be an everlasting covenant with the people of Israel, then the nation of Israel must exist forever. If it can disappear from the face of the earth, then it's not an everlasting covenant between God and Israel. When God made that statement, it's everlasting with you and your seeds, God knew full well what was going to happen when his son would come into the world, that people of Israel would reject his son. But God, knowing that ahead of time, still says it's everlasting. It's everlasting between me and the people of Israel. And so, again, since the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional by nature, totally dependent upon God being faithful to his word, and since God declared it to be an everlasting covenant with the people of Israel, then the nation of Israel must exist forever. There are some very significant statements in the Old Testament, several biblical passages in which God promises that in spite of Israel's terrible sins, it never will be totally destroyed as a nation. It will never be totally destroyed as a nation. Uh, For example, Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 44 and 45. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 44 and 45. God is speaking, and he talks about how the Jews are going to rebel against him in the future. But he says, verse 44, And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought Forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen that I might be their God. I am the Lord. God says, I will never break that binding covenant commitment I made the people of Israel. I know they're going to sin. I know they're going to rebel. But in spite of all of that, I will never break my covenant commitment to those people, to those people whatsoever. If he would break it, then you can't trust God to keep his word, to keep his word. Look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 11. And by the way, this was, was written when Israel was so corrupt and rebellious against God that the Babylonians were already on their way to be God's instrument to judge them and destroy so much of the nation and carry uh, them captive over to the land of Babylon. This is in Jeremiah uh, chapter 30 and verse 11, where God says, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, 
but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. He said, I'll punish you when you rebel, but I'll never make a full end of you as a people, as a nation here upon planet Earth. So the Abrahamic covenant guarantees Israel's permanent existence as a people or as a nation. And the prophetic scriptures indicate their worst time is yet to come. And many of them are going to be wiped out. Uh, Zechariah chapter 13 indicates when all the armies of all the nations of the world come against Israel at the end of the tribulation period, two-thirds of the Jews in the land will perish very quickly. But uh, one-third remnant there will be rescued, and then Jews who are still scattered among nations are going to be brought back to their ancient homeland uh, for the millennium, those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior and everything. So it guarantees Israel's permanent existence as a nation, but the second effect it has for Israel, it guarantees Israel's permanent ownership of the promised land. It guarantees Israel's permanent ownership of the promised land. Since the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional by nature and since God promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham and the people of Israel forever, forever, then Israel must hold ownership of the land of Canaan. It must hold ownership of the land of Canaan through the end of history, the end of history. Now some would say, but wait a minute. They've been removed from that land more than once and scattered among the nations. So how can you say, therefore, they still own the land? But people who reason that way are overlooking the fact that there's a difference between owning and occupying a land. There are a lot of landlords that own a lot of land and a lot of houses, but they live only in one, maybe a couple, maybe a, a, one for vacation somewhere, but they don't live in all the ones they own. There's a difference between owning land and occupying a land. And just because they removed and lost occupation, at least the majority of them, that didn't remove ownership of the land that God gave to them. In fact, even when the majority had been removed, there's still been, always been Jews living in that land, often a minority, right up through the Middle Ages. There were always Jews living in that land, a small minority, while the majority were scattered among the nations. But he's given them permanent ownership of that land. And so they're the rightful owners of the land there today. And nobody from God's viewpoint has a right to own that land and occupy that land. It's, it's by God's covenant, he's given it to the nation of Israel forever as an everlasting possession. Now, let me just make some application here. What should be our attitude as Christians? by believing Christians to what's going on in the Middle East today. Three things. Number one, if we're going to be faithful to God's word, what we looked here about the Abrahamic covenant, then as by believing Christians, we should support Israel's right to be in that land as a nation state. We should support their right to be in that land, and we should support... uh, their right to defend themselves against their enemies, to defend themselves against their enemies, if we're going to stick with what the scriptures are saying here. But secondly, we do have to recognize, however, that Israel is there overwhelmingly in unbelief. In unbelief, that's true. And therefore, it's not always right in everything it does. 
Do you and I as Christians, are we always right in things we do or say? If we're honest, we'd have to, be, have to say no. So they are there in unbelief, and therefore they're not always right in everything that they do. Although I tell you, they do things that other nations would never do. Before they're gonna invade Gaza, they already inform the people, we're gonna come in and invade you. They drop leaflets and everything and warn the, the normal people, go and hide at everything else before they go in and invade. What other nation ever does that if they're gonna attack an enemy power? They're not gonna give them a forewarning ahead of time, but the Israelis do. They go out of their way to do those kind of things. Third thing is this. As Christians, we're not to hate the Palestinian people. We're not to hate them. God sent his son to die for them, just as he sent him to, to, to die for the people of Israel, and those of us who are neither people of Israel or Palestinians. So we're not to hate the Palestinian people. And uh, there are Palestinians there in what we believe is the land of Israel who are coming to a saving knowledge of Christ today. A number of them, formerly Muslims, and they're suffering tremendously at the hands of fellow Palestinians who are Muslims. Some of those Palestinian Christians are being executed because they've converted to Jesus Christ. Others are being thrown into prisons and tortured severely and all the rest. And so these Palestinians have trusted Christ as Savior. We may not agree with all their practices and everything, but they are now our brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, we should be praying for them as well as praying for uh, our Israeli people that we love and everything there in the Middle East. We sometimes as a mission, and probably IBJM does too, gets reports, get reports of Palestinians who become saved and what's happening to them. And one report we received was that uh, there were some Palestinians there on the West Bank who got saved and out of Islam and they were thrown immediately into a prison and they were kept there for months and months and months, being tortured regularly. And the one man that gave a report was he just kept, he kept praying and praying, God, please send the Israelis in. Please send in the Israelis to release us from our bondage here in these prisons of this torture. And after a while, there was one time when the Israelis did invade a certain part of the, of the West Bank. They sent in uh, tanks and things like that and uh, the, the, the prison that they were in, the guards and everything fled. The Israelis left the prisoners in there. And when the prisoners there, the Palestinian Christians, saw the Israelis came, they struggled and struggled and struggled to remove some of the stones in the, in the base of the prison where they were. They finally were able to and squeeze themselves out of that. And this one man said, we went running immediately to the Israeli tank and we kissed it. So thankful for the Israelis coming and releasing us. And then the Israelis said to them, we're going to destroy that building. And they said, don't do that. Why? There's still prisoners down there in the basement. You destroy that building, you're going to kill them. The Israelis said, wait a minute. The authorities told us here there were no prisoners in that basement at all. And it dawned upon them, the Palestinians said that specifically, so the Jews would destroy them, and then the Western media would say, look at what the Jews are doing. They're killing these innocent people in the basement of this building. 
And so we should be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ as the Lord puts it upon our hearts who have trusted Christ as Savior and are suffering for their faith there in that land.